Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, I'm here with my co-host Sean Cheatham, and today we have a special guest with us, Pastor Sam Renahan, coming all the way from California, La Mirada. Did I say that right this time? <laughs> La Mirada. <laughs> La Mirada. Okay, okay. Can you tell I don't live there? Um, so yeah, Pastor Sam is joining us from California today to discuss early Particular Baptist history. Um, and so with that, Pastor Sam, can you give your, a short introduction of yourself and uh, some of your background before we discuss our topic today? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Dan and Sean. Uh, sure. I appreciate that. I am a pastor here at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Mirada uh, in LAOC area in Southern California. And um, I went to Westminster Seminary in Escondido, California for my MDiv and then I did a PhD at the Free University of Amsterdam, which is the school that Kuiper uh, helped found, and Bovink was there, and and others that other names you would know. And yeah, so pastoral ministry and writing books on theology and Baptist history are, are things that that I dedicate myself to, and I'm glad to participate in talking about that here in this podcast. Well, we're glad you're here, Pastor Sam. Um, and so this discussion kind of revolves around your first book that you wrote, this one here, The Petty France Church, uh, Part One. Yes, we both got our copy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't know I was supposed to hold mine up, too. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it kind of centers around um, this book. Um, and you had this published at the Center for Baptist Studies, and it really uh, dives into a lot of the writings of early particular Baptists with Nehemiah Cox and, and, uh, and the work he did there. Um, so what sparked your interest in the Petty France Church, and uh, what wanted you to write this book? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this podcast because most other interviews that I participate in are about other things. I don't get to talk about this too much, <laughs> so I, I'm happy about that. I, When I was in seminary and in Baptist history class, and we were talking about the 17th century particular Baptists, one of the things that really sparked me and got me excited was actually things that we didn't know. Um, you know, well, wh who was such and such a person? When were they born? Why don't we have life dates for them? You know, or when you start reading history books like Crosby or Ivy May and some of the sort of standard classic ones from the past, um, they would reference sources. And I'd say, well, where are those sources? Do they still exist? Can we know more? And so it was really a desire to know more that sparked my interest. And then through my dad giving me resources and helping me make connections with other people, I met Larry Kreitzer, who's a, a professor at Regents Park College in Oxford, and he has done massive work on William Kiffin. And so I met Larry Kreitzer on a, a research trip to London while I was doing my PhD. And really through my dad and through Larry, and through launching my own research, I was introduced to the fact that there is a world of resources and, well, I should say a world of sources, primary, original sources that has not been, uh, that either has been sort of lost in the sense that earlier Baptist history knew about it, but we don't now, but way more than that, there's sources that Baptist history has never known about, never mm. acknowledged, never researched, never looked into. And so I, I had a great desire to find out, you know, to do some digging, what is there to discover, what what still exists in historical records. And I've focused my efforts on the Petty France Church 
because there didn't seem to be too much about it in Baptist literature, and it, but it seemed so central. Like people talk about Nehemiah Cox and William Collins and the Confession and the Petty France Church, but if if I wanted to read about the Petty France Church, you'd kind of have to piece it together from all these different sources here and there, and that was frustrating to me. So I wanted to say, can we put this all together? Can we collect it into one place? Can we can we learn about this church? And that's really where my interest has come from is Nehemiah Cox, William Collins, the confession, and just the, the place of this church as a central church in the life of the London particular Baptists. All those things in the context of finding sources that were not found, um, those were motivators to me. Another was, as I read the Petty France book, I thought, you know, other people could read this if we just transcribe it and publish it uh, in a in a professional way or, or an academic way, so it's faithful. That's what I mean. Otherwise, you have to go to London. But if I go to London once and take pictures of it and then transcribe it and then publish it, no one has to go to London if they don't want to. <laughs> they can just buy the book and and read it, and it's it's all there. So there we go. I, I get super excited about this kind of thing. Yeah, and I think it's really neat. Be, you know, going back to that. Um, discussion about having such a rich history. We do have a rich history. And I think, you know, we just don't know what we don't know. You know, there's, there's all this wealth of knowledge that's sitting there waiting for us to tap. Um, and one thing I found really helpful, or I think is really neat about this book is that it has screenshots of some, you know, it has like Nehemiah Cox's signature and, and some of these old documents and you even print the entire, I think it was the, the church um, minutes or the church directory. I think it was in the book to help us to kind of see these, uh, the, the different historical aspects of the church. Um, you know, the, the particular Baptists weren't just running around um, in this small group of, of uh, believers over in England who were struggling on their own. They were intimately engaged in the culture there and they're intimately engaged in church life. And um, it, it's just really neat to see that. Yeah, that's been one of my desires as I continue to work on Petty France Part 2 and Lord Billing Part 3 is I want people to read these and to to know the, to know the particular Baptists mm. and not just the pastors but the people of the church too um, because so many sources still exist from their daily lives, from their everyday lives that you can you can learn about them and know them in a much more personal way you can engage the history in a far more intimate way than just sort of one big Baptist history book. I, I don't know. I love getting to know the people uh, as much as possible that are involved in these churches. And that's what a lot of my research is focused on knowing the people. So it's really more the Petty France research is not historical theology. It's really social history, which mm. is not, not my training really, but um, you know, as you, as you collect sources and, and learn about them, you just say, here's the life of this person in its context. And so that we know, you know, historical th theology will tell you about the things they believed, but social history says, here's who those people were um, and the family connections in the churches and their connections to other churches and just bringing to life the people of the Petty France church and the people of the particular Baptist churches. That's really important to me. Hmm. Yeah, with uh, the historical documents and, for example, the Petty France Church book, somebody had to handwrite every single line in there. It brings a reality to um, our Baptist ancestors that you don't necessarily just get from reading a book of 
oh, here's here's what they did here, here's what they did here, but to see actually, well, the church was located here and then it moved here, it brings a reality to the fact that these were living human beings that did all these things and and went through all these things. Um, the first part of the book is fairly dominated, I would say, with the background of persecution, the fact that they have to move and um, things that are going on is um, dominated by uh, a persecution in the background. Uh, why was the Petit France Church targeted by authorities in the 1680s? In the in the later years of Charles II's reign, there was a lot of conflict uh, within England for political reasons, uh, as some were concerned about Charles II potentially becoming Roman Catholic, or even less so, they were more concerned that he would die and his brother James II, who was a Roman Catholic, would become king. And then the Pope would have control over England and the church would become Roman Catholic, etc. So there's all this uh, concern about that, which creates conflict between um, the nonconformists who want Charles II to exclude James from the throne uh, and Charles II not wanting to do that. And, and it gets complicated, but the Church of England and the, and Charles II, they they wanted to repress nonconformity, not just for theological reasons. It's far more than theology that's involved. It's also political reasons. And the particular Baptists, along with Presbyterians and, and Congregationalists, they were pretty serious about some things. And and there were, there were plots uh, sometimes. Uh, I mean, some of it is... Um, you know, a small group of, of radicals or extremists making a plot, but th those kind of plots get attributed to the whole group sometimes. And mm -hmm. so it's easier to just repress everybody than, than try to figure out exactly who's involved in these plots when people won't even admit to it. Uh, and so targeting nonconformist churches was just as much about political suppression or co political control as it was religious uh, uniformity uh, in, in the church. And so the Petty France Church is targeted by authorities in the early 1680s, not in any specific way. All the other nonconformist churches are getting targeted at this time, because as far as the government is concerned, all the nonconformists are causing trouble, political trouble. Uh, and so this means that laws that were already in place about nonconformity are being enforced more rigorously, and any non-Church of England meetings are being raided. The the, whoever hosts it is being fined, whoever attends is being fined, whoever preaches is being fined. And if you do it more than once, the fines elevate. If you do it enough times, you can be excommunicated. Uh, and to be excommunicated from the Church of England means that your property can be forfeited and you can be exiled from the kingdom. So it's, a, it's really serious. And you have people from the Petty France Church who do flee to the Netherlands. Uh, they do flee the country because they don't want their goods to be confiscated. Uh, and so they kind of self-exile themselves so that they it goes as well as possible. The Petty France Church had been meeting in the same place for decades, so they made they were probably an easy target. There were also um, rewards for informants. When an informant mm -hmm. would give a report of a nonconformist church, if if that proved true, there was a reward for them. They got a share. Oh, well, let me put it this way: when the when they go and find a, a conventicle, an illegal religious meeting, and those people are fined, from the fines that have been collected, the informant gets a portion. 
Uh, and so there's a motivation for people to inform on these conventicles. And so if you look at the conventicle convictions for the Petty France Church, it says, you know, so-and-so <laughs> told on them, snitched on them, you know, <laughs> snitches get stitches, but not in this case, you know, the informants actually get pounds and, and shillings instead. Um, and so there is a whole culture, a whole, you know, uh, a, horse, a whole society that's involved in finding them out, in informing on them, and then being raided, then being fined. Uh, there were even news sheets, you know, which are like kind of like a newspaper, but much smaller, you know, just a, a few pages, maybe two or three pages. One of them was called the Conventicle Current that would just publish and say, oh, the other day a conventicle was caught in this place and so many people were taken there. It's like news. It's like, it's like headlines, you know, but it's really slander news. You know, it's we see in, in social media, the bad things have headlines. Well, it's the same thing. Look at these bad nonconformists. They got in trouble. They got caught. And the Petty France Church is just one of many during that time in the end of Charles II's reign where there's all of this unrest and this worry about what will happen in the transition of power. Will the, the nation become Roman Catholic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so would the nonconformists also include Presbyterians? Oh, yeah. The independents, the Congregationalists, the Quakers, the General Baptists, uh, and of course, Roman Catholics, uh, mm -hmm. all of them would be subject, all non-Anglican, all non-Church of England meetings um, of more than, what is it, six people are, are illegal. And if you have six people of your own household, that's okay. But anything more than that, you know, not of your household, in other words, all religious meetings of any kind that are not of the Church of England are illegal. So yes, that would include Presbyterians, that would include uh, independents, you know, John Owen's church, this happens to them. Um, all all the, the big names that were still alive during this time, they were, were dealing with the same things. Richard Baxter, uh, their churches mm. were, were being raided, they were being fined. Um, it, was, it was widespread, it was complete. It's hard to imagine what it would be like in that environment um to bring it to a modern perspective if we were worried about anytime somebody new came into the congregation would they be an informant how do we have to how do we have to deal with people knowing how do we have to secretly meet somewhere it's it's very it's difficult and uh scary to imagine um i did find when i was reading through the book the 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 fines that they were pay had to pay interesting um, for example, at one point it said that um, Nehemiah Cox had to pay a 10 pound fine. And I, I was curious, how much is that in uh, American dollars? So I did some investigation and apparently in 1700, 10 pounds would be about $800. So it's not, it's not necessarily cheap. And if every single time you get caught, you're paying $800 per, per person that, that begins to add up. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult to really compare money and today and then and stuff like that. But for context, I mean, if you think about it in, in Petty France volume one, it talks about Cox's personal value at death. Like all of his goods can be valued at this amount and it comes up to 80 pounds. He, he dies and all of his personal belongings amount to 80 pounds and he's getting fined 10 or 20 pounds for preaching at a nonconform at a, at a conventicle. So you're right. It is serious. It's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, going on to the next question, I suspect your your answer to the first first of my questions will probably um, 
shed some light on this, but uh, why were the particulars, excuse me, particular Baptists called Anabaptists? Because uh, in all these documents, you see they're constantly called Anabaptists. Yeah, in that in that time, anyone who rejected infant baptism and practiced credo baptism would be called an Anabaptist because from the perspective of those who did practice infant baptism, this was a rebaptism. You were already baptized. So if you go to credo baptism, you are rebaptizing. Of course, the particular Baptist would say infant baptism wasn't baptism at all. So it's not a rebaptizing, it's just properly baptizing for the first time. So the label Anabaptist is, you know, is a question of is this rebaptism or baptism? But it's also a kind of a, a slime label based on the worst cases of Anabaptism in Europe and, and in Germany. Um, you know, Munster, of course, always comes up. Mm-hmm. So it's it's an easy catch-all category that really never looks good, no matter who it's applied to. And it's it, honestly, it's a, a lazy label. But if it's coming from the government, <laughs> the government's probably not going to do too much work to to perfectly label everybody. <laughs> you know, they're just gonna they're just gonna say, okay, you practice non-infant baptism. All right, you're an Anabaptist. Um, so in that context, they would be called that. But if you ask, you know, why does a Presbyterian call them an Anabaptist or, or why do you, you may get more specific in other contexts, but in general, it's just an, a catch-all category for non-infant baptism practicers. <laughs> and it seems like they were constantly defending themselves like, no, 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 we're not, we're not those Anabaptists right. over there, guys. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're identifying ourselves with the Orthodox Reformed community. You know, right. Just like the, the first London confession, you know, those who are falsely and unjustly called right. Anabaptists. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're always saying that yeah. commonly, can, but falsely or unjustly. Yeah. You can, you can hear the frustration in that title. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it goes back to, I think to that generalization that people would make, Oh yeah, you're, you're, you look like you're with this group. So you must be with that group. So you're all with that group. Um, right. Yeah. All right. Um, so looking now into the life of Nehemiah Cox, um, why is he such a central character in particular Baptist history? Yeah, Nehemiah Cox uh, was the son of Benjamin Cox. So one way to think about him, which I think is helpful, is to realize where he's placed in particular Baptist history. There's this first generation around the First London Confession that moves out of the Church of England and into independency, into congregationalism, into nonconformity, uh, their dissenters. And Benjamin Cox, Nehemiah's father, uh, is a part of that first-gen transition. His mm-hmm. father was ordained in the Church of England. He was educated at Oxford. Uh, he was a priest. And then by the end of his life, he's a, a particular Baptist, not by the end, but you know, through his life, he becomes a particular Baptist pastor in a variety of places in, in England and involved in associational life and things like that. Well, his son, Nehemiah, born in 1649 or 1650, um, he's growing up as a particular Baptist. Mm. He's not born a part of the Church of England and then transitioning. He's growing up as a second-gen uh, particular Baptist who's starting out as a particular Baptist. And so Nehemiah, he gets to benefit from that point in the particular Baptist history where he lives where he's not necessarily transitioning or, or recovering, he's really building on something that's already been begun, something that's already started. And Nehemiah Cox, um, 
in our estimation, we may consider him something, but what did people in his day consider him to be? And he's constantly called learned, judicious, uh, eminent in all manner of learning. Like all these different people all identify him as someone who is very well educated. Uh, he certainly knew uh, he could read Latin and write in Latin. Uh, he knew Greek and Hebrew very well. And so all of these testimonies from his time describe him as a very educated and intelligent young man. Uh, and then, of course, he's working alongside of William Collins, who was also very well educated, who was just a little bit older than Nehemiah. And together, as, as co-pastors of Petty France, they were very active in London Baptist churches, in associational life in the, in the country churches. And his books as an author uh, were also in, influential, especially his book on, on covenants. People, again, during that time refer to it as like, this is the best one, or this one is really helpful. And so we say he has a, a big role because people back then marked him out as being... Mm -hmm a uh, especially intelligent or well-educated person. Um, but what, what has not been very well known is actually that Nehemiah Cox became a somewhat controversial figure uh, in the later part of his life because of his involvement with James II and the repeal campaign in the 1687, 1688, um, really 1688 time period. Now, Explaining what the repeal campaign was would take a little bit of time, uh, but basically when James II became king, he wanted to get rid of the, the penalties against nonconformists, um, surely because he's a Roman Catholic and he wants to, to decriminalize Roman Catholicism, but all evidence indicates that James II wanted a toleration for everybody not a replace the Church of England with Roman Catholicism. He wanted tolerance, toleration for all religious practices, um, surely with some limitations of, you know, heretics and atheists perhaps. But um, in order to do that, he had to change the law. James II had to change the law. And he couldn't just do it on his own. He would need Parliament to help him change the law. Um, and so Nehemiah Cox helped James II, along with others, to restock Parliament, to, to get new members of Parliament, so that when James II would propose this change in law, the members of Parliament would be favorable to it. <laughs> and so Cox is involved in the repeal campaign, a campaign to repeal these, these penalties against nonconformists by restocking Parliament. Well, this was very controversial because, of course, this means Nehemiah Cox is collaborating with a Roman Catholic monarch mm. who a lot of people during that time don't trust. They don't trust that it will be a general toleration. They think this is all a ruse to just get Roman, to consolidate Roman Catholic power uh, and to take over the church and to take over the country, etc. And of course, just a few years earlier, um, partic many particular Baptists had, had participated in Monmouth's rebellion against James II. And they had been killed in battle or executed afterwards. William Kiffin's grandsons, the Hewlings, were executed um, brutally because of their participation in Monmouth's rebellion against James II. And so you have people saying, William Kiffin could, could say, my grandchildren were put to death by this king's judges because they rebelled against him. And now you are going to co co collaborate with him? 
you know, aren't you a Protestant? Aren't you an Englishman? You know, let's, we should resist. We should, we should not cooperate with James II. And Nehemiah is saying he's not putting into place a Roman Catholic establishment. He's giving toleration for all of us. That's what we've been waiting for. This is what we've wanted all these years is toleration. And this is what we're going to bring about. So you can see how this would be a, a conflict of whether or not you trust James II, whether we should cooperate with him in this. Uh, it wasn't an easy question for them, but Nehemiah uh, took the side of helping the cause of toleration uh, in in that particular instance. So Nehemiah is important for the place he occupies in particular Baptist history, which enabled him to uh, sort of take things ahead instead of transitioning. He published, he was recognized as a learned man. He was a pastor of a local church, but also involved in associational life and involved in the political life of the country in a very tumultuous time. Um, so for all those reasons, he, he becomes a central character, one among many. He's not certainly not the only, but, but a, an important figure nonetheless. And one thing that I found very interesting about that issue with the repeal campaign was his closeness to James II, um, and that particular Baptists were not um, some obscure group. They were on the map um, with, the, uh, with the royalty. And James seemed to have good friendship, I think it was, with James II even after this, um, given his position as a doctor and physician, trained physician. Um, yeah. So th I found that very, very interesting. Um, so I, I guess you could say that uh, Nehemiah Cox was involved in some sort of lobbying. Is that what it would be? Or they're actually trying to replace the members of parliament to be more favorable. They would write, they would either visit or they would write to towns or mm. corporations and they would say, who, who among you <laughs> is favorable to this? And then they would take those lists of people back to the king's um, councils, to mm. the privy council. And the privy council had the authority to then say, okay, we are going to make these people members of parliament <laughs> for this oh, wow. borough, for this corporation. <laughs> So Nehemiah is involved in getting lists of pro-repeal people in livery companies, in um, boroughs, which are like counties. They're like political um, counties. And they give these lists back to the higher-ups, and the higher-ups then pretty much just rubber stamp and say, okay, we're going to make these people members of parliament. Now, after the fall of James II and the, the Glorious Revolution, it doesn't look very good for Nehemiah because Nehemiah just kind of like tampered with the whole country's uh, <laughs> house of representatives <laughs> um, for a Catholic monarch. Of course, from his perspective, it's all for a good cause, but when your cause loses and then William III looks really good and he's the one who gives toleration, you don't look so good. Um, so it, it was a matter of controversy that's discussed at, at greater length in the book. Okay. Um yeah, and it and it seems like Nehemiah was in the center um, of multiple controversies. You know, the, the next one we're going to talk about here is the hymn singing controversy of the 1690s. I think he was also involved in that. Um, but why was this particular controversy a problem even after the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith um, explicitly talks about singing in hymns in addition to psalms? Why was this still a controversy among particular Baptists? Yeah, there's there's a lot that we could say about this. As far as Nehemiah Cox is concerned, uh, technically he doesn't participate because he's dead. <laughs> he oh, dies in okay. 1689, 
uh, and the him singing controversy erupts in the in the years <laughs> following from there. No, it's all right. Um, but but he is important because we see him writing about this and wrestling with it himself. You know, ten years, twelve years earlier than that, which which tells us this was already an issue. Mm. It was already there, even if it wasn't as as surface level as it became later. So he he is important for the him singing controversy to see its earlier roots. But to the question of why was this such an issue with regard to the confession, which uses the language, I guess I could ask the question, does the confession adopt or confess hymn singing? Because the, the fact is, what it does, it, it just quotes scripture uh, mm-hmm. on, that, on that case. And so if you ask William Kiffin what that means and you ask Nehemiah Cox what that means, you'll get two different answers. <laughs> because William Kiffin will say, uh, yeah, singing in your making melody in your hearts. This is not congregational singing. Uh, this is each man worshiping in his own heart. Uh, and of course, Nehemiah Cox and others would, would say, "What is it to sing in the heart, but to express with the voice?" You know, like so they would read the same passage of scripture and come away with two different ideas of of how this should be pa- practiced. And the confession, all it really does in that place is quote scripture there. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's actually somewhat ambiguous and almost certainly on purpose, um, because if the 1689 explicitly adopted hymn singing way back in 1677 and then in 1688 when it's reprinted, it never could have been a centralizing uh, document like it was. Uh, take, for example, Hercules Collins' Orthodox Catechism. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, just slightly baptized. It's published in 1680, and it never becomes popular. It has no reprints. No other churches that we know of ever really seem to to grasp it. Um, the only real serious mention of it in literature comes from an from Isaac Marlowe, who hated him singing. And he describes that catechism as being, I think he uses a word similar to festering among us for these many years. He considers it a disease. The Orthodox catechism is regarded as a disease by Marlowe because it so clearly advocates hymn singing. Uh, Specifically uh, and intentionally, it advocates hymn singing. And then we see it not have a central place in particular Baptist life. So the Second London Confession, 1677, Yes, it adds to that chapter of religious worship and adds language about hymn singing that Savoy and Westminster didn't have, but it's really just scriptural language that we have to assume was used intentionally but ambiguously for multiple uh, interpretations on that point. So it's it's pretty complicated, actually, to, to think about that point. And the question came down to, is the church commanded to do this as a church in the public worship of the Lord's day? Mm. Or is this something that we, that we certainly can do privately and individually and in our own homes? Uh, and so it, Kiffin and Marlowe and others, they never disputed. They said, if you want to sing in your own home, if you want to sing as a group in your own home, that's fine. You know, sing, sing as you like, but don't bring, uh, don't bring into the public worship of God, uh, congregational singing when we haven't been commanded to do that as far as they were concerned. And then you have Keach and you have Collins, right. both Collins and Cox before them, though he wasn't involved in this phase of the controversy saying, no, we, we have been commanded to sing and we have scriptural songs to sing, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, that's, it's a, a huge, 
huge controversy. Yeah, and it, especially I think with Benjamin Keach, um, I mean he he essentially got into a fighting match with some brothers and had to go back and apologize and say, guys, I was out of line with how I handled that. Yes. Um, but do you think maybe some of the controversy also came maybe from um, other walks of life that some of these particular Baptists may have come in other religious backgrounds that may have influenced that? Well, the, the church of England background is really big. Um, the book of common prayer uh, mm. is looms large in all of these debates because one of the things that pushed um, Puritans, however you want to call them, out of the Church of England was something like the, the, the Book of Common Prayer, where set forms of prayer, as they would say it, are being imposed on people. You must say this in the worship of God. These are the words which you must say. And so the minister has his sermon given to him and the reading given to him and the prayer given to him, and he just repeats the Book of Common Prayer. And the people... It, it, it dominates the worship. And so they say, no, we should, we should worship God, you know, more, more freely. We're not commanded. You can't limit our consciences with this book of common prayer. Well, in the hymn singing controversy, the anti-singers say you're doing precisely what the book of common prayer does. You're telling everyone you must worship God with these words and I'm going to put them in your mouths. And now you sing them and they're not inspired words. They're, they're man-made compositions. Mm. And then the, then the pro singers say, don't we write our own sermons? You know, like we, <laughs> we write a sermon and we preach it in, in church. And so they, they really wrestling with this issue. Um, so the Church of England and the Book of Common Prayer looms large in the background. Maybe you had something else in mind with your question, though. Um, feel free. No, to... no, it was it was just more of a, I guess, trying to understand the context behind, um, you know, what the controversy was because it was such a big deal. It just blew up. Um, it's just like, wow, okay. It it seemed, you know, I guess until you said today, you know, it was left more generic. I thought it always in the confession to be more subtle based on quoting scripture, I guess, but um, I guess they left it more ambiguous and that would make sense given the historical context. But um, yeah. yeah, I guess it was just more to find context on why it was such a big deal. If you think about it, it, it also takes place in the context of other controversial practices and questions. Baptism itself, mm -hmm. um, whom should we baptize and how should we baptize? You know, the, the subjects and the mode, mm -hmm. they're Baptists because they're convinced the scriptures command us to do this in this way. Another contemporary debate was the laying on of hands. Uh, when someone is baptized, are we then commanded to lay hands upon them uh, to join the church. Some people said, yes, the scriptures say we ought to do this and we need to recover this practice that has been lost. And then other people say, no, we're not commanded to do this. Uh, it's not an ordinance. Um, that's the same type of debate that happens in singing. Is this an ordinance? Has it been mm. ordained or not? Should we, principle. should we recover this uh, that's been lost or is this, you know, a, a corruption in the worship of God? So you can tell they're thinking about everything they're doing, uh, mm. and hymn singing is just one of the more, one of the more um, tumultuous, or, yeah, contentious. Thank you. One of the more contentious issues because it's forced on a whole congregation. Mm. You know, laying on of hands or baptizing one one person is kind of involved, but now you're telling the whole congregation. Um, 
now women are going to sing. Now women are going to be speaking in church. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Or, or they'll say now unbelievers are going to be speaking in church. You know, all these kinds of, <laughs> of questions, all these kinds of arguments, you know, this can't be an ordinance. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. Wow. Wow. Interesting. Um, getting back to the theme of uh, being lumped in with people they don't necessarily want to be uh, lumped into. <laughs> Uh, in chapter seven of your book, you discuss the uh, Thomas Collier controversy. Uh, tell us about that and how uh, it impacted the uh, the creation of the Confession of Faith. Yeah, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, one of the things that always sort of fuels my interest in Baptist history and research, excuse me, is questions, the unknown. And so when I was in Baptist history class and, and such things, and we would talk about the confession of faith and its its origins, I always wanted to know why was it edited and put together when it was edited and put together? Like, why? <laughs> Did they just sit around one day and, and say to each other, you know what, we have a first confession, but you know what would be really cool? is a second one. You know, like, what, <laughs> why Why did they do that? What was the impetus? Uh, what, what was the, the motivation for doing so? And as I started to read more and more secondary literature, people started pointing to the Thomas Collier controversy, and I wanted to know more about that. But the sources involved in it are not readily available on Ebo, Early English Books Online, or Google Books, and things like that. So it took me and, and my dad separately getting into sources um, that were not publicly available to finally get as much information as we could about this. Mm. And as, as far as I can tell, as far as my research indicates, the Thomas Collier controversy is specifically uh, the context for the editing and publishing of our second confession of faith in 1677. So just to briefly summarize that controversy in context, Thomas Collier was a, a very well-known particular Baptist uh, pastor who had served in, in the countryside of England for several decades by the 1670s, sort of as a almost like a regional organizer. He wasn't just a local pastor, but he had been involved in overseeing sort of a whole region of churches and had been involved in a confession that they had put together called the Somerset Confession. Uh, and so he was a a leading figure, a prominent figure, a public figure, a well-known figure, and a pastor of a church. And he had been dealt with for doctrinal aberrations previously in the 16, I think late 1640s or early 1650s, I don't remember exactly, but some serious issues that he had then kind of walked back on. He had kind of dialed back and said, you know, I, uh, I was not careful here. But in the 1670s, he published a book where he just very openly and at length advocated a variety of positions that were not just unacceptable, but were straight up heretical. Mm. And one of the prob- that, that in itself is a problem because you have a published book uh, from a particular Baptist, a prominent one, who at length, it's a big systematic theology, is advocating you know, heretical views. But what made it even worse is that the subtitle was, or a confession of faith. And so you have a particular Baptist publishing a confession of faith with all these heretical views strongly advocated at length in a a large systematic theology. And people around Collier wrote to the London churches and said, you know, we've got a problem here. This, This is unacceptable. And Collier was 
confronted about some of those things. And then he published a second publication called An Additional Word to a Body of Divinity or a Confession of Faith, where he just makes it worse. He doesn't retract. He doesn't dial back. He doesn't take any. He doesn't take anything back. He actually pushes further into his heresy. And so now you have two publications with the subtitle Confession of Faith by a well-known particular Baptist. And it's in this context that the London churches and their pastors are going out into the country to deal with Thomas Collier and to try to handle this situation. And Nehemiah Cox is at the center of those dealings where there's this personal confrontation between the London elders and Collier at his church because half of his church was upset with him and the other half supported him. And Nehemiah Cox is said to be the, the primary disputant, the, the primary person to dispute Collier face to face in that meeting. And that's pretty fascinating because Kiffin's there, uh, Joseph Masters is there, a bunch of the the London pastors are there, but they're putting this young man, Nehemiah Cox, in his early 20s, uh, they're putting him forward to say, okay, you have the knowledge and you have the the gifts to face-to-face deal with this man, and we'll go with you and support you in this. And following from that meeting, which did not go well, um, Collier was very upset by it. Uh, following from that meeting, things just get worse and worse. And Cox and the uh, and the elders say, we're going to publish a book against your heresies, which Cox did, uh, called Vindicia Veritatis, a vindication of the truth. And then the, the London elders write to Collier's church and they say, you should leave his church. Uh, if you can't fix the, if you can't reform it yourselves, if you don't have enough of a majority to do that, you should leave his church. Um, they call him a heretic. Uh, Collier, etc. And then they meet together, the London pastors meet with other pastors in Bristol. Uh, and they they all decide that that's, in fact, it's at that meeting that they decided to send a letter to Collier's church where they call him a heretic. They tell the people to leave. Um, that's in August, the, the beginning of August, 1677. Well, that same month, August 1677, in the Petty France Church book, it says, and it was agreed that a confession of faith with the appendix thereto should, having been read and considered by the brethren, should be published. Mm. And so you say, okay, hmm, why is it that the confession of faith is published, or at least agreed to be published in August of 1677, and then is published in 1677? What's happening during that time? You have a public, prominent, particular Baptist pastor, wow, all that alliteration, uh, who they are dealing with. And the London churches are concerned. The Western country churches are concerned. The Bristol country churches are are concerned. The whole particular Baptist world is abuzz about this, and they're worried about this. uh, And so they publish a confession of faith. Uh, put forth by the elders and brethren of many churches uh, in London and the country, it says. Uh, and so if at that point, they have vindicated themselves. If anyone mm. in, in, in England wants to know, what do these particular Baptists believe? They're not going to pick up Thomas Collier's book. They're going to pick up this much shorter uh, and confession of faith, a confession of faith that intentionally uses the language of the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession to say, we belong to this Orthodox Christianity, this Orthodox mm. Protestantism uh, in this particular stream of expression. We find no defect in the words. We have no itch to clog religion with new words. We're going to follow them. And they mm. know Collier won't do that. 
Uh, they know he, he rejects that theology. And in fact, he does them a favor and he writes a refutation of points of the confession. And they're probably saying, thank you. That's what we wanted. We want you to, to, to clearly state you don't agree with us. So that confession uh, effectively cuts off Collier and his, and his heterodoxy, his heresy from them in their own communion and in the eyes of the country around them. And there's, there's more that we could say about that, but that is how the Collier controversy really brings the Second London Baptist Confession into being. It's the impetus. It's the cause that brings us about. And Nehemiah Cox is at the center of it. Uh, mm. He's the one who is the point man to dispute Collier face-to-face. He's the one who's tasked to write against him. It's in his church where it's at least mentioned that the, the confession was read, agreed to, and should be published. And so for, for all those reasons, and there's actually a few more, we would say, you know, he probably had a, a large hand in putting this together, mm. uh, if, not, if not the primary hand. You know, no doubt it's not the work of one person. And the theology of the confession does not belong to one person at that time. But who really kind of wove this all together and had the resources and the knowledge and the time to do it? He's the best candidate for being the primary influence. Um, and what you know what? Uh, when I was in seminary, that really wasn't known to that degree. <laughs> you know, like, I, I love the fact that next the next people can just read the book and start there. They don't have to mm. dig. They don't have to find all that. Maybe they'll find more sources that either uh, add to that or po- possibly change that narrative in the future. You know, that's certainly a possibility. But as far as I can discern from my own research, people can say, okay, we have a very good answer, a very good explanation for where our confession even comes from. Mm. Before it was kind of like, well, they did it in the 1670s, and we love it, which was all true. But now <laughs> there's a much clearer answer for why it appeared and what the confession is. It's actually a declaration of orthodoxy uh, in the context of heresy, and it's public orthodoxy in the context of, of heresy. And that maybe that should already have been obvious, but it just makes it so concrete. It makes it crystal clear of what the confession is designed to accomplish and why it was published uh, and why baptism is really just an, well, credo-baptism is mainly an appendix. You know, like, okay, yes, credo-baptism is in the chapter on on baptism, but arguments about baptism, they're just put in an appendix and really just summarized. It, it's not very contentious. Their, their purpose is not to say, we're Baptists and we're here to fight everyone. Their purpose is to say, we're Orthodox Protestants and we're here to to stay. We're, we're not deviating from this. Uh, we are um, Orthodox Christians. So. Yeah, On and that, it seems. Oh, I'm sorry, Sean. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Dan. I was just going to say, um, I think when we look at our confession and we just look at it as it is, we tend to forget uh, the that particular Baptists were not monolithic. Um, I think that's something we tend to forget. We're just like, yeah, they had this confession. They're all unified. Look at them go. You know, they're fighting the the powers that be. And no, they, they had struggles like this, and, and our confession was birthed amidst these grave struggles. I mean, Thomas Collier had, um, I think one of his biggest contention points was on the Trinity and, and denying the Orthodox view, the Nicene view of the Trinity. Um, and that was really a sticking point for the particular Baptist. So, and I think it highlights, too, the importance of confessions. We need confessions today in order to not only uh, you know, fence our theology, but define who we are. 
who are we? Why are we called Reformed Baptists? What does that even mean? Um, it tells the world uh, who we are and distinguishes ourselves. Absolutely. So with that sort of uh, backdrop of rediscovery, or at least illumination of why the uh, 1689 was, uh, was created, uh, what is the legacy that the early particular Baptists left for us, and why is it important that we recover uh, their and our history? Well, <clears throat> the legacy that they've left for us is a legacy of a, a group of people who were zealous to understand the scriptures and to apply the scriptures rightly. They, it, it may have led in cases to contentiousness, and, and we need to guard against that. But they did have a zeal for the Lord to, to ensure that their worship was pure, to ensure that the way in which their ecclesiology was structured, the way in which their sacramentology was practiced, the way in which they preached the gospel, all of these things, they wanted to be sure that they were doing what was right according to the scriptures. But they clearly were also concerned with connecting themselves with broader Protestant orthodoxy, as seen in their first and second confessions. They, they weren't so isolated um, they speak about, they ask questions in their general assemblies like, is it is it permissible for uh, someone to attend a Presbyterian or independent church and hear their preaching? And they say, yes, of course, you know. Um, so they're, they're charitable, they're, they're specific and they're zealous for their beliefs, but they're also charitable uh, and desirous to, to co-op, maybe not cooperate, but at least to be, uh, to have communion and fellowship with, uh, with, non-particular Baptists. They also are, left us a legacy of associationalism. Um, again, not a perfect legacy. They, the association in London that, not just London, but really all of England that grew up around the time of 1689 burned to the ground from the hymn singing controversy. So mm -hmm. it's a legacy of, of good and bad. It's a legacy of zealous for the truth, but sometimes without love. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a legacy that we can learn from, not, not in a, a sense of triumphalism or hagiography. They did all the good things and only the good things. <laughs> now we, we can look at it and say they did some really good things that we ought to recover, like associationalism. But they also did some bad things where they devoured, you know, if you bite and devour one another, what's going to become of you, as Paul says in the New Testament. Hmm. And they did that. They, they definitely did. And we, we do it all the time on Twitter, but... <laughs> um, they also left us a legacy of literature. Uh, it's not, people often misunderstand that. It's not a legacy of literature like you might get from Banner of Truth. You know, Banner mm -hmm. of Truth has this wide range of, of ex extensive and expansive writings from Presbyterians and Independents. And we love that treasure trove. You won't necessarily find the same treasure trove of writings in the particular Baptists for a variety of reasons. One is that they were never really established in, um, they never had like established churches like the Church of England did that are supported by a tithe system. And mm. they didn't have university placement. And so a lot of the rich treasure trove of reformed resources from Europe or England, a lot of that comes from settled ministers in settled churches with settled incomes and settled university professors in settled universities with settled incomes who have the time and the resources to write these extensive treatises. Mm. The Baptists didn't necessarily enjoy those privileges. And so their literature often isn't as, um, as complete as we might want it to be. 
but there are many sermons that have been published that we can benefit from. And after the Act of Toleration, after 1689, they do have more freedom. There is a, an explosion of sorts of literature, mainly Benjamin Keach, uh, who mm -hmm. starts publishing more after that point because there's more freedom. And then later on, you get more writings from someone like John Gill, who mm -hmm. is kind of in a more settled state because the country is in a more settled state and the churches are in a more settled state at that point. So we can recover their legacy of literature. We can recover their legacy of practice, the good and the bad. And in so doing, not only do we become more faithful in understanding the confession and, uh, and more faithful in practicing the confession, but it also gives us perspective to analyze and say, what was good about it? What was not so good about it? How can we perhaps learn from their mistakes and improve? How can we not make the same mistakes that they made uh, with God's blessing? So all of those things are helpful for, for us. And perhaps we should even say at times, did they go too far in this? Mm. Uh, was the denial of congregational singing going too far? Or was, was the practice of such and such, were they too contentious about this? Or were they rightly zealous about this? Uh, do we, should we not go that far or should we go as far as they did? All those questions are helpful for us to think through in our context and in our day as we look at the scriptures, the same scriptures that they did. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Sam, we thank you for joining us today. Um, it's This has been a really enjoyable and I think very fruitful discussion um, you know, we, we as particular Baptists, we want to recover our history and put it out there for people to see. Um, so I, I appreciate you um, taking the time to discuss your book and the, our rich history today. Yeah, thanks, guys. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I get super excited about, <laughs> about these kind of things. I don't get to talk about them too much, which makes brought you to me all you did. But uh, <laughs> well, are you going to be doing any more uh, of the Petty France podcast? I haven't seen any of those lately. <laughs> oh, I don't. I don't know who runs that. I like those. I like them a lot. But um, mm -hmm. I don't know. I'll, I'll have to. When I meet the guy, I'll ask him. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> well, that's all we have for today. Thank you for joining us. And Lord willing, we will be back um, next week uh, as we uh, continue on with our episodes. Thank you for joining us. Thanks.